Isaac Dinizan took off for Africa. We all have our Africas, those dark and romantic notions that call to our deepest selves. When we answer that call, when we commit to it, we set in motion the principle that C.G. Jung dubbed synchronicity, loosely defined as a fortuitous intermeshing of events. Back in the 60s, we called it serendipity. Whatever you choose to call it, once you begin your creative recovery you may be startled to find it cropping up everywhere. Don't be surprised if you try to discount it. It can be a very threatening concept. Although Jung's paper on synchronicity was a cornerstone of his thought, even many Jungians prefer to believe it was a sort of side issue. They dismiss it, like his interest in the I Ching, as an oddity, nothing to take too seriously. Jung might differ with them. Following his own inner leadings brought him to experience and describe a phenomenon that some of us prefer to ignore, the possibility of an intelligent and responsive universe, acting and reacting in our interests. Chance is always powerful. Let your hook be always cast, in the pool, where you least expect it, there will be a fish. Ovid. It is my experience that this is the case. I have learned, as a rule of thumb, never to ask whether you can do something. Say, instead, that you are doing it. Then fasten your seat belt. The most remarkable things follow. God is efficient, the actress Julia McCarthy always reminds me. I have many times marveled at the sleight of hand with which the universe delivers its treats. About six years ago, a play of mine was chosen for a large staged reading. At the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. I had written the play with my friend Julia in mind for the lead. She was my ideal casting, but when I arrived in Denver, casting was already set. As soon as I met my leading lady, I had a funny feeling there was a bond ticking. I mentioned this to the director but was assured the actress was a consummate professional. Still, the funny feeling lingered in my stomach. Sure enough, a week before we were set to open, our leading lady abruptly resigned and dashed from my play and from painting churches, the play that was in mid-run. The Denver Center was stunned and very apologetic. They felt terrible about the damage my play would sustain by the abrupt departure. In a perfect world, who would you cast, they asked me. I told them, Julia McCarthy. Julia was hired and flown in from Los Angeles. No sooner did the center's directors lay eyes on her work than they asked her not only to do my play but also to take over the run of painting churches M-dash for which she was brilliantly cast. God is showing off, I laughed to Julia, very happy that she had the chance to do her play after all. In my experience, the universe falls in with worthy plans and most especially with festive and expansive ones. I have seldom conceived a delicious plan without being given the means to accomplish it. Understand that the what must come before the how. First choose what you would do. The how usually falls into place of itself. Desire, ask, believe, receive. Stellateral man. All too often, when people talk about creative work, they emphasize strategy. Neophytes are advised of the Machiavellian devices they must employ to break into the field. I think this is a lot of rubbish. If you ask an artist how he got where he is, he will not describe breaking in but instead will talk of a series of lucky breaks. A thousand unseen helping hands, Joseph Campbell calls these breaks. I call them synchronicity. It is my contention that you can count on them. Remember that creativity is a tribal experience and that tribal elders will initiate the gifted youngsters who cross their path. This may sound like wishful thinking, but it is not. 
Sometimes an older artist will be moved to help out even against his or her own wishes. I don't know why I'm doing this for you, but, again, I would say that some of the helping hands may be something more than human. We like to pretend it is hard to follow our heart's dreams. The truth is, it is difficult to avoid walking through the many doors that will open. Turn aside your dream and it will come back to you again. Get willing to follow it again and a second mysterious door will swing open. The universe is prodigal in its support. We are miserly in what we accept. All gift horses are looked in the mouth and usually returned to sender. We say we are scared by failure, but what frightens us more is the possibility of success. Take a small step in the direction of a dream and watch the synchronous doors flying open. Seeing, after all, is believing. And if you see the results of your experiments, you will not need to believe me. Remember the maxim leap, and the net will appear. In his book, The Scottish Himalayan Expedition, W.H. Murray tells us his explorer's experience, until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative left square bracket or creation right square bracket there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves to. All sorts of things occur to help one that would otherwise never have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of incidents and meetings and material assistance which no man would have believed would have come his way. If you do not trust Murray N-or you might want to trust Gagey. Statesman, scholar, artist, man of the world. Gagey had this to say on the will of Providence assisting our efforts. Whatever you think you can do or believe you can do, begin it. Action. Has magic, grace, and power in it. Genuine beginnings begin within us, even, when they are brought to our attention by external opportunities. William Bridges. Shame. Some of you are thinking, if it were that easy to take an action, I wouldn't be reading this book. Those of us who get bogged down by fear, before action are usually being sabotaged by an older enemy, shame. Shame is a controlling device. Shaming someone is an attempt to prevent the person from behaving in a way that embarrasses us. Making a piece of art may feel a lot like telling a family secret. Secret telling, by its very nature, involves shame and fear. It asks the question what will they think of me once they know this? This is a frightening question, particularly, if we have ever been made to feel ashamed for our curiosities and explorations m-social, sexual, spiritual. How dare you, angry adults often rage at an innocent child who has stumbled onto a family secret. How dare you open your mother's jewelry box? How dare you open your father's desk drawer? How dare you open the bedroom door? How dare you go down in the cellar, up in the attic, into some dark place, where we hide those things we don't want you to know? The act of making art exposes a society to itself. Art brings things to light. It illuminates us. It sheds light on our lingering darkness. It casts a beam into the heart of our own darkness and says, See? When people do not want to see something, they get mad at the one who shows them. They kill the messenger. A child from an alcoholic home gets into trouble scholastically or sexually. The family is flagged as being troubled. The child is made to feel shame for bringing shame to the family. But did the child bring shame? No. The child brought shameful things to light. The family shame predated and caused the child's distress. 
What will the neighbors think, is a shaming device aimed at continuing a conspiracy. Of illness. The cost of a thing is the amount of what I call life which is required to be exchanged for it, immediately or in the long run. Henry David Thoreau. Art opens the closets, airs out the cellars and attics. It brings healing. But before a wound can heal it must be seen, and this act of exposing the wound to air and light, the artist's act, is often reacted to with shaming. Bad reviews are a prime source of shame for many artists. The truth is, many reviews do aim at creating shame in an artist. Shame on you. How dare you make that rotten piece of art. For the artist who endured childhood shaming m dash over any form of neediness, any type of exploration, any expectation m dash shame make it in even without the aid of a shame-provoking review. If a child has ever been made to feel foolish for believing himself or herself talented, the act of actually finishing a piece of art will be fraught with internal shaming. Many artists begin a piece of work, get well along in it, and then find, as they near completion, that the work seems mysteriously drained of merit. It's no longer worth the trouble. To therapists, this surge of sudden disinterest, it doesn't matter, is a routine coping device employed to deny pain and ward off vulnerability. Adults who grew up in dysfunctional homes learn to use this coping device very well. They call it detachment, but it is actually a numbing out. He forgot my birthday. Oh, well, no big deal. A lifetime of this kind of experience, in which needs for recognition are routinely dishonored, teaches a young child that putting anything out for attention is a dangerous act. Dragging home the invisible bone is how one recovering artist characterized her vain search for an achievement big enough to gain approval in her family of origin. No matter how big a deal it was, they never seemed to take much notice. They always found something wrong with it. All A's and one B and that B got the attention. It is only natural that a young artist try to flag parental attention by way of accomplishments m positive or negative. Faced with indifference or rage, such youngsters soon learn that no bone would really meet with parental approval. Often we are wrongly shamed as creatives. From this shaming we learn that we are wrong to create. Once we learn this lesson, we forget it instantly. Buried under it doesn't matter, the shame lives on, waiting to attach itself to our new efforts. The very act of attempting to make art creates shame. We will discover the nature of our particular genius, when we stop trying to conform to our own or to other people's models, learn to be ourselves, and allow our natural channel to open. Shakti Gain. This is why many a great student film is never sent off to festivals, where it can be seen, why good novels are destroyed or live in desk drawers. This is why plays do not get sent out, why talented actors don't audition. This is why artists may feel shame at admitting their dreams. Shame is retriggered in us, as adults, because our internal artist is always our creative child. Because of this, making a piece of art may cause us to feel shame. We don't make art with its eventual criticism foremost in mind, but criticism that asks a question like how could you can make an artist feel like a shamed child. A well-meaning friend who constructively criticizes a beginning writer may very well end that writer. Let me be clear. Not all criticism is shaming. In fact, even the most severe criticism when it fairly hits the mark is apt to be greeted by an internal aha. If it shows the artist a new and valid path for work, the criticism that damages is that which disparages, dismisses, ridicules, or condemns. 
it is frequently vicious but vague and difficult to refute. This is the criticism that damages. Shamed by such criticism, an artist may become blocked or stop sending work out into the world. A perfectionist friend, teacher, or critic m-like a perfectionist parent who nitpicks at missing commas m-can dampen the order of a young artist who is just learning to let it rip. Because of this, as artists, we must learn to be very self-protective. Does this mean no criticism? No. It means learning where and when to seek out right criticism. As artists, we must learn when criticism is appropriate and from whom. Not only the source but the timing is very important here. A first draft is seldom appropriately shown to any but the most gentle and discerning eye. It often takes another artist to see the embryonic work that is trying to sprout. The inexperienced or harsh critical eye, instead of nurturing the shoot of art into being, may shoot it down instead. Since you are like no other being ever created, since the beginning of time, you are incomparable. Brenda Uland. I have made my world and it is a much better world than I ever saw outside. Louise Nevelson. As artists, we cannot control all the criticism we will receive. We cannot make our professional critics more healthy or more loving or more constructive than they are. But we can learn to comfort our artist child over unfair criticism, we can learn to find friends with whom we can safely vent our pain. We can learn not to deny and stuff our feelings when we have been artistically savaged. Art requires a safe hatchery. Ideally, artists find this first in their family, then in their school, and finally in a community of friends and supporters. This ideal is seldom a reality. As artists, we must learn to create our own safe environments. We must learn to protect our artist child from shame. We do this by diffusing our childhood shamings, getting them on the page, and sharing them with a trusted, non-shaming other. By telling our shame secrets around our art and telling them through our art, we release ourselves and others from darkness. This release is not always welcomed. We must learn that, when our art reveals a secret of the human soul, those watching it may try to shame us for making it. It's terrible, they may say, attacking the work when the work itself is actually fine. This can be very confusing. When we are told, shame on you and feel it, we must learn to recognize this shame as a recreation of childhood shames. I know that work is good. I thought that was good work. Could I be kidding myself? Maybe that critic is right. Why did I ever have the nerve to think? And the downward spiral begins. At these times, we must be very firm with ourselves and not pick up the first doubt. We simply cannot allow the first negative thinking to take hold. Taking in the first doubt is like picking up the first drink for an alcoholic. Once in our system, the doubt will take on another doubt and dash and another. Doubting thoughts can be stopped, but it takes vigilance to do it. Maybe that critic was right. And, boom, we must go into action, you are a good artist, a brave artist, you are doing well. It's good that you did the work. When God's Will, the romantic film comedy I directed, debuted in Washington, D.C., it was a homecoming for me. My earliest journalism work had been for the Washington Post. I was hoping for a hometown girl makes good reception. But in the reviews printed prior to the opening, I did not get it. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Albert Camus. The Post sent a young woman who watched an entire movie about theater people and then wrote that it was about movie people. She added that most of my dialogue had been stolen from Casablanca. 
I wondered what movie she had seen, not the one I made. My movie had 40-odd theater jokes and a one-line joke about Casablanca. Those were the facts but they didn't do me any good. I was mortified. Shamed. Ready to, almost, die. Because the antidote for shame is self-love and self-praise, this is what I did. I went for a walk through Rock Creek Park. I prayed. I made a list for myself of past compliments and good reviews. I did not tell myself, it. Doesn't matter. But I did tell my artist self, you will heal. And I showed up for my opening. It was a lot more successful than my reviews. Three months later, my film was chosen for a prestigious European festival. They offered to fly me over. To pay my expenses. To showcase my film. I hesitated. The Washington shaming had done its slow and poisonous work. I was afraid to go. But I knew better than to not go. My years in artistic recovery had taught me to just show up. When I did, my film sold at a great price and won a headline in Variety. I share the headline, because the irony of it was not lost on me. God's will hit in Munich, it read. It is God's will for us to be creative. Dealing with criticism. It is important to be able to sort useful criticism from the other kind. Often we need to do the sorting out for ourselves, without the benefit of a public vindication. As artists, we are far more able to do this sorting than people might suspect. Pointed criticism, if accurate, often gives the artist an inner sense of relief, uh, huh. So that's what was wrong with it. Useful criticism ultimately leaves us with one more puzzle piece for our work. The words that enlighten the soul are more precious than jewels. Hezrat in Khan. Useless criticism, on the other hand, leaves us with a feeling of being bludgeoned. As a rule, it is withering and shaming in tone, ambiguous in content, personal, inaccurate, or blanket in its condemnations. There is nothing to be gleaned from irresponsible criticism. You are dealing with an inner child. Artistic child abuse creates rebellion. Creates block. All that can be done with abusive criticism is to heal from it. There are certain rules of the road useful in dealing with any form of criticism. 1. Receive the criticism all the way through and get it over with. 2. Jot down notes to yourself on what concepts or phrases bother you. 3. Jot down notes on what concepts or phrases seem useful. 4. Do something very nurturing for yourself and read an old good review or recall a compliment. 5. Remember, that, even if you have made a truly rotten piece of art, it may be a necessary stepping stone to your next work. Art matures spasmodically and requires ugly duckling growth stages. 6. Look at the criticism again. Does it remind you of any criticism from your past m-particularly shaming childhood criticism? Acknowledge to yourself that the current criticism is triggering grief over a long-standing wound. 7. Write a letter to the critic m-not to be mailed, most probably. Defend your work and acknowledge what was helpful, if anything, in the criticism proffered. 8. Get back on the horse. Make an immediate commitment to do something creative. 9. Do it. Creativity is the only cure for criticism. Artists who seek perfection in everything are those who cannot attain it in anything. Eugene Delacroix. Detective work, an exercise. Many blocked people are actually very powerful and creative personalities who have been made to feel guilty about their own strengths and gifts. 
without being acknowledged, they are often used as batteries by their families and friends, who feel free to both use their creative energies and disparage them. When these blocked artists strive to break free of their dysfunctional systems, they are often urged to be sensible, when such advice is not appropriate for them. Made to feel guilty for their talents, they often hide their own light under a bushel for fear of hurting others. Instead, they hurt themselves. A little sleuth work is in order to restore the persons we have abandoned and dash ourselves. When you complete the following phrases, you may feel strong emotion, as you retrieve memories and misplaced fragments of yourself. Allow yourself to free associate for a sentence or so with each phrase. 1. My favorite childhood toy was. 2. My favorite childhood game was. 3. The best movie I ever saw, as a kid was. 4. I don't do it much but I enjoy. 5. If I could lighten up a little, I'd let myself. 6. If it weren't too late, I'd. 7. My favorite musical instrument is. 8. The amount of money I spend on treating myself to entertainment each month is. 9. If I weren't so stingy with my artist, I'd buy him slash her. 10. Taking time out for myself is. 11. I am afraid that, if I start dreaming. 12. I secretly enjoy reading. 13. If I had had a perfect childhood I'd have grown up to be. 14. If it didn't sound so crazy, I'd write or make. 15. My parents think artists are. 16. My dog thinks artists are. 17. What makes me feel weird about this recovery is. 18. Learning to trust myself is probably. 19. My most cheer me up music is. 20. My favorite way to dress is. Take your life in your own hands and what happens? A terrible thing, no one to blame. Erica Jung. Growth. Growth is an erratic forward movement, two steps forward, one step back. Remember that and be very gentle with yourself. A creative recovery is a healing process. You are capable of great things on Tuesday, but on Wednesday you may slide backward. This is normal. Growth occurs in spurts. You will lie dormant sometimes. Do not be discouraged. Think of it as resting. Very often, a week of insights will be followed by a week of sluggishness. The morning pages will seem pointless. They are not. What you are learning to do, writing them even, when you are tired and they seem dull, is to rest on the page. This is very important. Marathon runners suggest you log 10 slow miles for every fast one. The same holds true for creativity. In this sense, easy does it is actually a modus operandi. It means, easy accomplishes it. If you will you to a practice of writing three pages every morning and doing one kind thing for yourself every day, you will begin to notice a slight lightness of heart. Practice being kind to yourself in small, concrete ways. Look at your refrigerator. Are you feeding yourself nicely? Do you have socks? An extra set of sheets? What about a new house plant? A thermos for the long drive to work? Allow yourself to pitch out some of your old ragged clothes. You don't have to keep everything. There is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening, that is translated through you into action, and because there is only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and will be lost. Martha Graham. The expression God helps those who help themselves may take on a new and very different meaning. 
where in the past it translated, God helps only those who earn help, it will now come to signify the amazing number of small free gifts the Creator showers on those who are helping themselves to a little bounty. If you do one nice thing a day for yourself, God will do two more. Be alert for support and encouragement from unexpected quarters. Be open to receiving gifts from odd channels, free tickets, a free trip, an offer to buy you dinner, a new two-year-old couch. Practice saying yes to such help. The scientifically inclined among you might want to make a good, thorough list of clothes you wish you had. Very often, the items on the list come into your possession at disconcerting speed. Just try it. Experiment. More than anything else, experiment with solitude. You will need to make a commitment to quiet time. Try to acquire the habit of checking in with yourself. Several times a day, just take a beat, and ask yourself, how you are feeling. Listen to your answer. Respond kindly. If you are doing something very hard, promise yourself a break and a treat afterward. Yes, I am asking you to baby yourself. We believe that to be artists we must be tough, cynical, and intellectually chilly. Leave that to the critics. As a creative being, you will be more productive when coaxed than when bullied. Tasks. 1. Describe your childhood room. If you wish, you may sketch this room. What was your favorite thing about it? What's your favorite thing about your room right now? Nothing? Well, get something you like in there and dash maybe something from that old childhood room. Whenever I have to choose between two evils, I always like to try the one I haven't tried before. May West. 2. Point. Describe five traits you like in yourself as a child. 3. Point. List five childhood accomplishments. Straight A's in seventh grade, trained the dog, punched out the class bully, short-sheeted the priest's bed. And a treat, list five favorite childhood foods. Buy yourself one of them this week. Yes, jello with bananas is okay. 4. Habits, take a look at your habits. Many of them may interfere with yourself nurturing and cause shame. Some of the honest things are self-destructive. Do you have a habit of watching TV you don't like? Do you have a habit of hanging out with a really boring friend and just killing time? There's an expression. Some rotten habits are obvious, overt, drinking too much, smoking, eating instead of writing. List three obvious rotten habits. What's the payoff in continuing them? Some rotten habits are more subtle, no time to exercise, little time to pray, always helping others, not getting any self-nurturing, hanging out with people who belittle your dreams. List three of your subtle foes. What use do these forms of sabotage have? Be specific. 5. Make a list of friends who nurture you and dash that's nurture, give you a sense of your own competency and possibility, not enable, give you the message that you will never get it straight without their help. There is a big difference between being helped and being treated, as though we are helpless. List three nurturing friends. Which of their traits, particularly, serve you well? 6. Call a friend who treats you like you are a really good and bright person who can accomplish things. Part of your recovery is reaching out for support. This support will be critical, as you undertake new risks. 7. Inner compass. Each of us has an inner compass. This is an instinct that points us toward health. It warns us when we are on dangerous ground, and it tells us when something is safe and good for us. Morning pages are one way to contact it. So are some other artist brain activities m painting, driving, walking, scrubbing, running. This week, 
Take an hour to follow your inner compass by doing an artist brain activity and listening to what insights bubble up. 8. List 5 people you admire. Now, list 5 people you secretly admire. What traits do these people have that you can cultivate further in yourself? 9. List 5 people you wish you had met who are dead. Now, list 5 people who are dead whom you'd like to hang out with for a while in eternity. What traits do you find in these people that you can look for in your friends? 10. Compare the two sets of lists. Take a look at what you really like and really admire M- and a look at what you think you should like and admire. Your shoulds might tell you to admire Edison, while your heart belongs to Houdini. Go with the Houdini side of you for a while. Creative work is play. It is free speculation using the materials of one's chosen form. Stephen Matchmanovich. Creativity is seeing something that doesn't exist already. You need to find out how you can bring it into being and that way be a playmate with God. Michelle Shea. Check in. 1. How many days this week did you do your morning pages? How was the experience for you? If you skipped a day, why did you skip it? 2. Did you do your artist date this week? Yes, yes, and it was awful. What did you do? How did it feel? 3. Did you experience any synchronicity this week? What was it? 4. Were there any other issues this week that you consider significant for your recovery? Describe them. Week 4. Recovering a sense of integrity. T. His week may find you grappling with changing self-definition. The essays, tasks, and exercises are designed to catapult you into productive introspection and integration of new self-awareness. This may be both very difficult and extremely exciting for you. Warning, do not skip the tool of reading deprivation. Honest changes. Working with the morning pages, we begin to sort through the differences between our real feelings, which are often secret, and our official feelings, those on the record for public display. Official feelings are often indicated by the phrase, I feel okay about that left square bracket the job loss, her dating someone else, my dad's death, right square bracket. What do we mean by I feel okay? The morning pages force us to get specific. Docs I feel okay mean I feel resigned, accepting, comfortable, detached, numb, tolerant, pleased, or satisfied. What does it mean? Okay is a blanket word for most of us. It covers all sorts of squirmy feelings, and it frequently signals a loss. We officially feel okay, but do we? At the root of a successful creative recovery is the commitment to puncture our denial, to stop saying, it's okay when in fact it's something else. The morning pages press us to answer what else. In my years of watching people work with morning pages, I have noticed that many tend to neglect or abandon the pages whenever an unpleasant piece of clarity is about to emerge. If we are, for example, very, very angry but not admitting it, then we will be tempted to say we feel okay about that. The morning pages will not allow us to get away with this evasion. So we tend to avoid them. Each painting has its own way of evolving. When the painting is finished, the subject reveals itself. William Basietz. If we have the creeping feeling that our lover is not being totally honest with us, the morning pages are liable to bring this creepy possibility up and with it, the responsibility for an unsettling conversation. Rather than face this mess, we will mess up on doing the morning pages. By contrast, if we are suddenly and madly in love, the morning pages may seem threatening. 
We don't want to puncture the fragile and shiny bubble of our happiness. We want to stay lost in the sea of a blissful us rather than be reminded that there is an I in the we, or an I in the we that is temporarily blinded. In short, extreme emotions of any kind m-the very thing that morning pages are superb for processing m-are the usual triggers for avoiding the pages themselves. Just as an athlete accustomed to running becomes irritable when he is unable to get his miles in, so, too, those of us accustomed now to morning pages will notice an irritability when we let them slide. We are tempted, always, to reverse cause and effect, I was too crabby to write them, instead of, I didn't write them so I am crabby. Over any considerable period of time, the morning pages perform spiritual chiropractic. They realign our values. If we are to the left or the right of our personal truth, the pages will point out the need for a course adjustment. We will become aware of our drift and corrective M-dash, if only to hush the pages up. To thine own self be true, the pages say, while busily pointing that self out. It was in the pages that Mickey, a painter, first learned she wanted to write comedy. No wonder all her friends were writers. So was she. Chekhov advised, if you want to work on your art, work on your life. That's another way of saying that in order to have self-expression, we must first have a self to express. That is the business of the morning pages, I, myself, feel this way, and that way, and this way. No one else need agree with me, but this is what I feel. The process of identifying a self inevitably involves loss as well as gain. We discover our boundaries, and those boundaries by definition separate us from our fellows. As we clarify our perceptions, we lose our misconceptions. As we eliminate ambiguity, we lose illusion as well. We arrive at clarity, and clarity creates change. Eliminate something superfluous from your life. Break a habit. Do something that makes you feel insecure. Piero Firoxi. I have outgrown this job, may appear in the morning pages. At first, it is a troubling perception. Over time, it becomes a call for action and then an action plan. This marriage is not working for me, the morning pages say. And then, I wonder about couples therapy. And then, I wonder, if I'm not just bored with me. In addition to posing problems, the pages may also pose solutions. I am bored with me. It would be fun to learn French. Or, I noticed a sign just down the block for a clay and fiber class. That sounds interesting. As we notice which friends bore us, which situations leave us stifled, we are often rocked by waves of sorrow. We may want our illusions back. We want to pretend the friendship works. We don't want the trauma of searching for another job. Faced with impending change, change we have set in motion through our own hand, we want to mutiny, curl up in a ball, ball our rise out. No pain, no gain, the nasty slogan has it. And we resent this pain no matter what gain it is bringing us. I don't want to raise my consciousness, we will. I want, and thanks to the morning pages we learn what we want and ultimately become willing to make the changes needed to get it. But not without a tantrum. And not without a kriya, a Sanskrit word meaning a spiritual emergency or surrender. I always think of kriyas as spiritual seizures. Perhaps they should be spelled. Cries, because they are cries of the soul, as it is run through changes. We all know what a cry looks like, it is the bad case of the flu right, after you've broken up with your lover. It's the rotten head cold and bronchial cough that announces you've abused your health to meet an unreachable work deadline. 
that as my attack out of nowhere, when you've just done a round of caretaking your alcoholic sibling, that's a cryia, too. Stop thinking and talking about it and there is nothing you will not be able to know. Zen paradigm. Always significant, frequently psychosomatic, cryas are the final insult our psyche adds to our injuries, get it, a cryia asks you. Get it, you can't stay with this abusive lover. You can't work at a job that demands 80 hours a week. You can't rescue a brother who needs to save himself. In 12-step groups, cryas are often called surrenders. People are told just let go. And they would, if they knew what they were holding on to. With the morning pages in place and the artist dates in motion, the radio set stands half a chance of picking up the message you are sending and or receiving. The pages round up the usual suspects. They mention the small hurts we prefer to ignore, the large successes we failed to acknowledge. In short, the morning pages point the way to reality, this is, how you're feeling, what do you make of that? And what we make of that is often art. People frequently believe the creative life is grounded in fantasy. The more difficult truth is that creativity is grounded in reality, in the particular, the focused, the well-observed or specifically imagined. As we lose our vagueness about ourself, our values, our life situation, we become available to the moment. It is there, in the particular, that we contact the creative self. Until we experience the freedom of solitude, we cannot connect authentically. We may be enmeshed, but we are not encountered. Art lies in the moment of encounter, we meet our truth and we meet ourselves, we meet ourselves and we meet our self-expression. We become original, because we become something specific, an origin from which work flows. As we gain M-or regain M-our creative identity, we lose the false self we were sustaining. The loss of this false self can feel traumatic, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't recognize me. Remember, that the more you feel yourself to be terra incognita, the more certain you can be that the recovery process is working. You are your own promised land, your own new frontier. Shifts in taste and perception frequently accompany shifts in identity. One of the clearest signals that something healthy is afoot is the impulse to weed out, sort through, and discard old clothes, papers, and belongings. I don't need this anymore, we say, as we toss a low self-worth shirt into the giveaway pile. I'm sick of this broken-down dresser and its 16 coats of paint, as the dresser goes off to goodwill. All the arts we practice are apprenticeship. The big art is our life. M.C. Richards. It is not, because things are difficult that we do not dare, it is, because we do not dare that they are difficult. Seneca. By tossing out the old and unworkable, we make way for the new and suitable. A closet stuffed with ratty old clothes does not invite new ones. A house overflowing with odds and ends and tidbits you've held onto, for some day has no space for the things that might truly enhance today. When the search and discard impulse seizes you, two cross currents are at work, the old you is leaving and grieving, while the new you celebrates and grows strong. As with any rupture, there is both tension and relief. Long-seated depression breaks up like an ice flow. Long-frozen feelings thaw, melt, cascade, flood, and often overrun their container, you. You may find yourself feeling volatile and changeable. You are. Be prepared for bursts of tears and of laughter. A certain giddiness may accompany sudden stabs of loss. Think of yourself as an accident victim walking away from the crash. Your old life has crashed and burned. Your new life isn't apparent yet. 
you may feel yourself to be temporarily without a vehicle. Just keep walking. If this description sounds dramatic, it is only to prepare you for possible emotional pyrotechnics. You may not have them. Your changes may be more like cloud movements, from overcast to partly cloudy. It is important to know that no matter which form your growth takes, there is another kind of change, slower and more subtle, accumulating daily, whether you sense its presence or not. Nothing dramatic is happening to me. I don't think the process is working, I have often been told by someone who from my perspective is changing at the speed of light. The analogy that I use is that once we engage in the process of morning pages and artist dates, we begin to move at such velocity that we do not even realize the pace. Just as travelers on a jet are seldom aware of their speed, unless they hit a patch of turbulence, so, too, travelers on the artist's way are seldom aware of the speed of their growth. This is a form of denial that can tempt us to abort the recovery process that isn't happening to us. Oh yes it is. To become truly immortal, a work of art must escape all human limits, logic and common sense will only interfere. But once these barriers are broken, it will enter the realms of childhood visions and dreams. Giorgio di Chirico When we have engaged the Creator within to heal us, many changes and shifts in our attitudes begin to occur. I enumerate some of them here, because many of these will not be recognizable at first as healing. In fact, they may seem crazy and even destructive. At best, they will seem eccentric. There will be a change in energy patterns. Your dreams will become stronger and clearer, both by night and by day. You will find yourself remembering your nighttime dreams, and by day, daydreams will catch your attention. Fantasy, of a benign and unexpected sort, will begin to crop up. Many areas of your life that previously seemed to fit will stop fitting. Half your wardrobe may start to look funny. You may decide to refolster a couch or just toss it out. Musical bents may alter. There may even be bursts of spontaneous singing, dancing, running. You may find your candor unsettling. I don't like that is a sentence that will leave your mouth. Or I think that's great. In short, your tastes and judgments and personal identity will begin to show through. What you have been doing is wiping the mirror. Each day's morning pages take a swipe at the blur you have kept between you and your real self. As your image becomes clearer, it may surprise you. You may discover very particular likes and dislikes that you hadn't acknowledged. A fondness for cactuses. So why do I have these pots of ivy? A dislike for brown. So why do I keep wearing that sweater, if I never feel right in it? Conditioned, as we are to accept other people's definitions of us, this emerging individuality can seem to us like self will run right. It is not. The snowflake pattern of your soul is emerging. Each of us is a unique, creative individual. But we often blur that uniqueness with sugar, alcohol, drugs, overwork, underplay, bad relations, toxic sex, underexercise, over TV, undersleep m-many and varied forms of junk food for the soul. The pages help us to see these smears on our consciousness. As you look over the time you have been doing your morning writing, you will see that many changes have entered your life as a result of your willingness to play a room in it for your creator's action. You will have noticed an increased, sometimes disconcerting, sense of personal energy, some bursts of anger, some flashpoints of clarity. People and objects may have taken on a different meaning to you. 
there will be a sense of the flow of life and dash that you are brought into new vistas, as you surrender to moving with the flow of God. This is clear already. You may well be experiencing a sense of both bafflement and faith. You are no longer stuck, but you cannot tell where you are going. You may feel that this can't keep up. You may long for the time when there was no sense of possibility, when you felt more victimized, when you didn't realize how many small things you could do to improve your own life. It is normal to yearn for some rest when you are moving so rapidly. What you will learn to do is rest in motion, like lying down in a boat. Your morning pages are your boat. They will both lead you forward and give you a place to recuperate from your forward motion. It is difficult for us to realize that this process of going inside and writing pages can open an inner door through which our Creator helps and guides us. Our willingness swings this inner door open. The morning pages symbolize our willingness to speak to and hear God. They lead us into many other changes that also come from God and lead us to God. This is the hand of God moving through your hand, as you write. It is very powerful. One technique that can be very reassuring at this point is to use your morning pages M-dash or a part of them M-dash for written affirmation of your progress. Put it in writing, we often say when making a deal. The center that I cannot find is known to my unconscious mind. W.H. Auden. All you need to do to receive guidance is to ask for it and then listen. Sanae Roman. There is a special power in writing out the deal we are making with our creator. I receive your good willingly and I will be done are two short affirmations that when written in the morning remind us to be open to increased good during the day. I trust my perceptions is another powerful affirmation to use as we undergo shifts in identity. A stronger and clearer me is emerging. Choose affirmations according to your need. As you excavate your buried dreams, you need the assurance that such explorations are permissible. I recover and enjoy my identity. Buried dreams, an exercise. As recovering creatives, we often have to excavate our own pasts for the shards of buried dreams and delights. Do a little digging, please. Be fast and frivolous. This is an exercise in spontaneity, so be sure to write your answers out quickly. Speed kills the sensor. 1. List 5 hobbies that sound fun. 2. List 5 classes that sound fun. 3. List 5 things you personally would never do that sound fun. 4. List 5 skills that would be fun to have. 5. List 5 things you used to enjoy doing. 6. List 5 silly things you would like to try once. As you may have gathered by this point in your work, we will approach certain problems from many different angles, all of them aimed at eliciting more information from your unconscious about what you might consciously enjoy. The exercise that follows will teach you enormous amounts about yourself and dash as well as giving you some free time in which to pursue the interests you just listed. Reading Deprivation If you feel stuck in your life or in your art, few jump starts are more effective than a week of reading deprivation. No reading? That's right, no reading. For most artists, words are like tiny tranquilizers. We have a daily quota of media chat that we swallow up. Like greasy food, it clogs our system. Too much of it and we feel, yes, fried. It is a paradox that by emptying our lives of distractions we are actually filling the well. Without distractions, we are once again thrust into the sensory world. With no newspaper to shield us, a train becomes a viewing gallery. 
with no novel to sink into, and no television to numb us out, an evening becomes a vast savanna in which furniture M- and other assumptions M- get rearranged. Reading deprivation casts us into our inner silence, a space some of us begin to immediately fill with new words M-long, gossipy conversations, television binging, the radio as a constant, chatty companion. We often cannot hear our own inner voice, the voice of our artist's inspiration, above. The static. In practicing reading deprivation, we need to cast a watchful eye on these other pollutants. They poison the well. If we monitor the inflow and keep it to a minimum, we will be rewarded for our reading deprivation with embarrassing speed. Our reward will be a new outflow. Our own art, our own thoughts and feelings, will begin to nudge aside the sludge of blockage, to loosen it and move it upward and outward until once again our well is running freely. Reading deprivation is a very powerful tool and a very frightening one. Even thinking about it can bring up enormous rage. For most blocked creatives, reading is an addiction. We gobble the words of others rather than digest our own thoughts and feelings, rather than cook up something of our own. In my teaching, the week that I assign reading deprivation is always a tough one. I go to the podium knowing that I will be the enemy. I break the news that we won't be reading and then I brace myself for the waves of antagonism and sarcasm that follow. We are always doing something, talking, reading, listening to the radio, planning what next. The mind is kept naggingly busy on some easy, unimportant external thing all day. Brenda Uland. In a dark time, the eye begins to see. Theodore Rothk. At least one student always explains to me M- pointedly, in no uncertain terms M- that he or she is a very important and busy person with duties and obligations that include reading. This information is inevitably relayed in a withering tone that implies I am an idiot child, an artistic flake, unable to grasp the complexities of an adult's life. I just listen. When the rage has been vented, when all the assigned reading for college courses and jobs has been mentioned, I point out that I have had jobs and I have gone to college and that in my experience I had many times wriggled out of reading for a week due to procrastination. As blocked creatives, we can be very creative at wriggling out of things. I ask my class to turn their creativity to wriggling into not reading. But what will we do comes next. Here is a brief list of some things that people do when they are not reading. Even at the safe remove of the written word, I can feel the shock waves of antagonism about trying this tool. I will tell you that those who have most resisted it have come back the most smugly rewarded for having done it. The nasty bottom line is this, sooner or later, if you are not reading, you will run out of work and be forced to play. You'll light some incense or put on an old jazz record or paint a shelf turquoise, and then you will feel not just better but actually a little excited. Don't read. If you can't think of anything else to do, cha-cha. Yes, you can read and do this week's tasks. Tasks. 1. Environment. Describe your ideal environment. Town. Country. Swank. Cozy. One paragraph. One image, drawn or clipped, that conveys this. What's your favorite season? Why? Go through some magazines and find an image of this. Or draw it. Place it near your working area. 2. Time travel. Describe yourself at 80. What did you do after 50 that you enjoyed? Be very specific. Now, write a letter from you at 80 to you at your current age. What would you tell yourself? What interests would you urge yourself to pursue? 
What dreams would you encourage? 3. Time travel, remember yourself at 8. What did you like to do? What were your favorite things? Now, write a letter from you at 8 to you at your current age. What would you tell yourself? 4. Environment, look at your house. Is there any room that you could make into a secret, private space for yourself? Convert the TV room? Buy a screen or hang a sheet and cordon off a section of some other room? This is your dream area. It should be decorated for fun and not as an office. All you really need is a chair or pillow, something to write on, some kind of little altar area for flowers and candles. This is to help you center on the fact that creativity is a spiritual, not an ego, issue. 5. Use your life pick, from week 1 to review your growth. Has that nasty tarantula changed shape yet? Haven't you been more active, less rigid, more expressive? Be careful not to expect too much too soon. That's raising the jumps. Growth must have time to solidify into health. One day at a time, you are building the habit patterns of a healthy artist. Easy does do it. List ongoing self-nurturing toys you could buy your artist, books on tape, magazine subscriptions, theater tickets, a bowling ball. When the soul wishes to experience something she throws an image of the experience out before her and enters into her own image. Meister Eckhart. I learned that the real creator was my inner self, the Shakti. That desire to do something is God inside talking through us. Michelle Shea. 6. Write your own artist's prayer. See pages 207 to 08. Use it every day for a week. 7. An extended artist date, plan a small vacation for yourself. One weekend day. Get ready to execute it. A pen your closet. Throw out M or hand on, or donate M one low self worth outfit. You know the outfit. Make space for the new. 9. Look at one situation in your life that you feel you should change but haven't yet. What is the payoff for you in staying stuck? 10. If you break your reading deprivation, write about how you did it. In a tantrum? A slip up? A bench? How do you feel about it? Why? Check in. 1. How many days this week did you do your morning pages? Tantrums often show up as skipping the morning pages. How was the experience for you? 2. Did you do your artist date this week? Does your artist get to do more than rent a movie? What did you do? How did it feel? 3. Did you experience any synchronicity this week? What was it? 4. Were there any other issues this week that you consider significant for your recovery? Describe them. Week 5. Recovering a sense of possibility. T. His week you are being asked to examine your payoffs in remaining stuck. You will explore how you curtail your own possibilities by placing limits on the good you can receive. You will examine the cost of settling for appearing good instead of being authentic. You may find yourself thinking about radical changes, no longer ruling out your growth by making others the cause of your constriction. Limits. One of the chief barriers to accepting God's generosity is our limited notion of what we are in fact able to accomplish. We may tune into the voice of the Creator within, hear a message M-dash and then discount it as crazy or impossible. On the one hand, we take ourselves very seriously and don't want to look like idiots pursuing some patently grandiose scheme. On the other hand, we don't take ourselves M-dash or God M-dash seriously enough and so we define as grandiose many schemes that, with God's help, may fall well within our grasp. 
remembering that God is my source, we are in the spiritual position of having an unlimited bank account. Most of us never consider how powerful the Creator really is. Instead, we draw very limited amounts of the power available to us. We decide how powerful God is for us. We unconsciously set a limit on how much God can give us or help us. We are stingy with ourselves. And if we receive a gift beyond our imagining, we often send it back. Expect your every need to be met, expect the answer to every problem, expect abundance on every level, expect to grow spiritually. Eileen Caddy. Some of you may be thinking that this sounds like the magic wand chapter, I pray and presto. Sometimes, that is, how it will feel. More often, what we are talking about seems to be a conscious partnership in which we work along slowly and gradually, clearing away the wreckage of our negative patterning, clarifying the vision of what it is we want, learning to accept small pieces of that vision from whatever source and then, one day, presto. The vision seems to suddenly be in place, 